Welcome to the 16th episode of the Undisciplined Podcast. I am your host, as always, Dr. Nico Beitendach. It's been a while since I've had an episode, so I'm glad to finally get one out again. I've been quite busy, and as I think those of you who've been here for a while can deduce, this podcast is a pet project of mine. It means I can't bring you content every week like many podcasts do. The point is, is that I only do this when there's someone I really want to talk to and who I think is worth having on. I'm not making episodes for the sake of it, and I hope it shows. I've also been quite busy with my own projects. The biggest one is my first monograph that will come out in January. And I'm also developing some new, hopefully exciting directions that Undisciplined can go into. It's not quite at the point yet where I want to make public exactly what it will look like, but suffice it to say that I am working on some new ideas and I will share that with you soon. And hopefully it's something that you will enjoy and take some value from. Anyway, Today, I'm talking to Dr. Christian Morgner from Sheffield University, in particular about a book that he translated and edited. It's a collection of essays or articles by Niklas Luhmann, and he compiled them into the volume entitled The Making of Meaning From the Individual to Social Order. These are all taken from Luhmann's series called Semantics and Social Structure, and the essays that Dr. Morgner included in here are all extremely interesting and I think relevant to our contemporary situation. The book came out earlier this year with Oxford University Press, and I talk with Dr. Morgner more about how he translated and the content of the various essays. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for sticking with Undisciplined and enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, Christian, thank you very much for talking to me today. I'm very honored to have you here. Um, you just very recently published a book, The, Me the Making of Meaning, which contains some of your own work as well as a lot of translations from Niklas Luhmann. So before we delve straight into the book, it's my tradition to ask guests first to introduce themselves a little bit, especially their academic background. And maybe also what would be interesting to hear is how you became interested in Luhmann in particular. Thank you, Nico. Thanks, for, thanks so much for the invite. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so by training, I'm a sociologist. Um, I've studied sociology in my undergraduate and master's levels and actually came across Luhmann at uh, quite an early stage in my undergraduate studies. I think it was in the first semester of my second year in like it's been a typical introductory um, seminar on contemporary soci sociological theory, I think it was. And I was actually meant to give a presentation um, on Luhmann. Um, I, had no, I had no idea who Nicholas Luhmann was at the time. So really, so if you know, at the time, somehow by accident, that I stumbled across this work. But I think what is supposedly quite interesting is that the text I had to present 
or talk about is also the very text that forms the core of the book that I've published now sort of 20 years later. So it's coming all in full circle. Um, so in a sense, I discovered Lumon quite early in my sociological studies and was quite intrigued you know, by, the, by the complexity of um, his sociological approach. But then I think my studies at the time were all around quite theoretical and quite conceptual. Um, so in that sense, it wasn't just Luhmann. Um, I mean, I was also reading quite a number of other sociological thinkers at the time, Noel Elias, Jürgen Habermas, Karl Marx, Max Weber, and so forth. So there was really sort of a very strong sociological grounding um, in terms of you know, reading also these thinkers in terms of the, their original publications and their original texts, so not just through textbooks. And I found that quite intriguing because it really you know, challenged your everyday understanding of the social world and how we interact with others and so forth. So I think that was quite intriguing. And therefore, I kind of so if you know, follow that thinking because it seems if you know, to offer something where you can think out of the box, so if you know, beyond your um, typical perceptions of the social world. And I think it stayed with me that I always if you know, wanted not just to become some sort of you know, armchair social theorist that is just, you know, rereading existing literature. But I always had a very strong interest in combining it with empirical research. Either sort of, you know, empirical research being at the very beginning and stimulating conceptual thinking, or sort of, you know, having certain conceptual ideas and then seeing sort of, you know, how they can be explored empirically. Um, so for instance, in my master's dissertation at the time, um, I wrote on uh, published, you know, wrote the text on trust. Um, and I was quite interested in particular in the role of trust in the transformation of Eastern Germany at the time and the role of the church as a kind of, you know, institution that offered a lot of trust within the political system that was largely being deeply detrusted. And therefore, so, you know, for instance, you know, providing a place of congregation where people could meet quite safely and discuss, in a sense, um, you know, the political state and political fates of, you know, of Eastern Germany. Um, I you know, collected a lot of um, empirical data at the time and so forth. And I found it really sort of, you know, intriguing and kind of you know, then developed this further. Um, so also, for instance, in my PhD, I worked on global media events, um, which in a sense combined an interest in um, network research on uh, media messages. But likewise, so, you know, also looked into the production of meaning making. Right, so if you know these networks of you know media messages and how they're interlinked and how so if you know meaning is being mediated and transferred from one message to the other within a so if you know, really short time frame, but also at the global scale. Um, and I remember so if you know for the research, I traveled to archives in the US, I traveled to archives in Singapore and in Germany and so forth, and all the so if you know to also um, provide and you know develop the kind of empirical evidence and data so that the theory is not just, I don't know, a mere illustration of the data and vice versa, but really, so if, you know, they speak to each other quite at eye level and that the data is really challenging the theory and the theory can also, you know, grow because you know, it's been challenged by something, you know, it, it's, it's been tested with. Um, and so in a sense, because, you know, having worked across these topics and with the variety of different methods and conceptual ideas, I was always quite flexible in terms of my own um, academic biography. So I've then, you know, worked later on in, I don't know, 
history departments, language departments, um, you know, so more in the humanities, but then also work at sociology departments, communication departments, and currently I'm a senior lecturer um, or like an associate professor if you use the US system in the management school. Um, so in a sense of, you know, thinking, so if, you know, quite globally and, and, you know, looking at these subjects from such an interdisciplinary perspective has enabled me to work across a variety of different academic disciplines because I think, you know, the notion of meaning is something that is quite important for all of these disciplines. I don't know, be it in history, for instance, you know, how we narrate history, so, you know, how we construct, you know, historical narratives and so forth. Meaning is very important. You know, you work in the language department, obviously, so, you know, the semantics and translations and meanings are very, very important. But likewise, so, you know, in a, in a communication or even, so, you know, in the management school, Right, so if you know the way we think about uh, so, you know, innovation, you know, new meanings, so if you know, come to the world, you know, meanings being transformed within organizational contexts, you know, the whole tradition around sense making. Um, so that's something, so as a kind of you know trajectory that um, I've tried to develop further, and in a sense, so, you know, has informed the work on the book project um, that you've mentioned. Thank you. This centrality of meaning in your research connects very nicely with this book and speaking about that now there's always been a kind of a steady stream of translations from the german to the english of luhmann's work and of course also other languages too but i get the impression from from your volume that you chose the texts to include into the translation very uh carefully and that these texts all hang together under a certain theme with a clear goal in mind. And I think that you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like that you are trying to present a side of Luhmann that perhaps German scholars already knew, but that is unfamiliar to English scholars on Luhmann, those who don't have the ability to go back to the German texts. Am I right with this? What, what was the, the, the central theme of, of the selections that you made? And what were you trying to show in all these other translations that are happening? What were you trying to put forward to at least the English academic community? Yeah, I, I th- uh, thank you, Nico. I think there are two elements that, um, so if you know, two ideas that really inform the selection of the text in that book but then also that book project um, overall. So one of these elements is that is when we look at the presentation of Luhmann's work, I think in you know, 99% of the you know, different academic contexts, be it sociology, be it, I don't know, management and education and whatever he's received, it's typically seen as system theory, right? So that keyword system is, you know, being used um, pretty much all the time, um, and I also sort of, you know, felt a little bit unease with that presentation because you know we're looking at the scholar with a work of you know a time span over forty years, having published you know so and so many publications, and it all seems to be you know reduced to this one label, to this one term, and I think you know that seemed sort of, you know maybe something useful you know for the purpose of an you know, introductory handbook you know into sociology but then um it you know comes at the danger that so you know you start to neglect the 
complexity and you know all the other areas and all the other ideas that a particular scholar has to offer. So in a sense, it's not just something that applies necessarily to Luhmann, that kind of tendency to use these sort of labels, right? You see it with others, I don't know, Parsons as you know being a functionalist or you know Marxism and so forth. And then you know immediately certain concepts and ideas you know pop into our minds for the reason that others of you know remain in the shadows. And so in that sense of, you know, I felt it's a bit of a problematic reading because just, you know, seeing Luhmann as a system theorist ignores, you know, certain parts of his, of his work, of his thinking. Um, but he actually, you know, didn't use the word system, right? And what he sort of, you know, even himself sort of, you know, was sometimes a bit at unease when he, I don't know, spoke at a certain conference or gave a paper. He didn't use the word system in that presentation at all and was still being introduced as a system theorist. So it also, you know, kind of like raised eyebrows on his side, and I know some of his um, students reported that he even sort of, you know, turned it into a bit of a um, joking exercise that he wouldn't write papers uh, or like, you know, would do presentations without the word "system" in there at all, and still, sort of, you know, being being presented as such. So I think, you know, there is on the one hand something that informed this book project, what is to a certain extent a criticism of that sociological approach to how we present great thinkers and, you know, using sometimes overtly narrow labels um, and thereby sort of, you know, ignoring um, certain other traditions. And the role of meaning sort of, you know, is one of these concepts that is actually really, really central for Lumen and becomes therefore easily ignored. And just to give an example, I mean, in the early debate that he had with Jürgen Habermas in 1971, so if you know where these you know, two great scholars met and, discuss of you know their different theoretical approaches um, which you know later became published as a book um, Luhmann wrote a text in there which is called meaning as a basic concept so he didn't publish actually a text in there which is called system as a basic concept he never published actually such a text if you know where he puts if you know that centrality to the term um, system so we can see so if you know already there are other concepts where he thought they're really actually quite central for my thinking. So, you know, how ideas of, you know, with a variety of different problems, but they are, let's say, so, you know, neglected if you just, you know, view a scholar under a particular label. The other element is also that, obviously, you know, the term or the word system, and I think this is potentially something that applies more so to the Anglo-American context, has, has quite a negative connotation. So, you know, systems are being seen as something quite static, uh, as something, I don't know, machine-like and so forth that seemed to be, I don't know, against freedom, against, I don't know, human creativity and so forth, right? So in particular, so if, you know, where they, in the aftermath of, I don't know, you know Talcos Parsons' work and, you know, um, so if, you know his work, so if, you know, falling out of favor, that not only applied to this particular scholar, but it seemed to me also applied to the term systems overall, right? So enough, you know, as soon as people might hear Oh, you know, the word system, they think of it in the kind of, you know, negative terms. And then also, you know, maybe ignore the work of a particular scholar if they think it's being associated with this. So I think, so, you know, it's kind of, you know, trying being critical of these readings, of these traditions, of these presentations, you know, which neglects, you know, really, really important parts of, you know, of a particular thinker. And like I said, so, you know, meaning being one of them. The other elements of, you know, like I said, so, you know, there are two elements that inform this book. The other one, the second one is what we also have this tendency when we think of a social theorist, right? You know, we immediately sort of you know, imagine potentially someone who is kind of like an armchair philosopher 
who isn't sort of you know really engaging with the world. You know, they're sitting at home. You know, I don't know, looking at the sky, looking at the stars. If you know, thinking about the world. You know, just reading books and so forth. And I think you know, collecting these works, I was I was also quite intentional in a sense to to deal with this particular reading because Luhmann was actually you know one of those social theorists who was also extremely empirical. Um, I mean, so you know, in his work, he was involved in a large quantitative survey that he conducted on reforms of um, public administration in Germany, uh, which was published as a book, and several you know, journal papers came out of it. Um, so it's like, you know, quantitative skills were also at his disposal. Um, for the book on um, love, you know, he spent several months in archives in Paris, um, so, you know, reading all that archival materials, a project, you know, similar to the works of Norbert Elias or Michel Foucault in terms of his um, skill set. Um, and he was also, you know, very much an ethnographer, you know, traveling the world and, you know, trying to see things for, you know, his own eyes and really, you know, experiencing these matters. And I think, you know, that book project is then also meant to kind of, you know, showcase more his empirical thinking, right? So, you know, to see actually how skillful he was when he dealt with all that historical material right his really sort of you know his skill in a sense at reading sort of you know all these old documents interpreting ordering them analyzing them and so forth um and not just you know glossing over by using like a certain number of theoretical uh, contact uh, concepts so you can really see also you know that the sociologist you know Luhmann so, you know, is coming through in these texts you know by being able you know, to deal with all this um, empirical data and I think so you know these two developments you know focusing on the aspect of meaning so you know it's another really central aspect and something I think which will also really be you know um, could be well connected to the anglophone context but then likewise also you know that more empirical thinking is potentially something that could build bridges um you know into his work and you know make others more interested in actually you know reading it it's funny that you mentioned this connection that you know how a single term can get connected to a thinker because i'm right now busy reading again in the field of legal theory i'm reading hans kelsen's famous a pure theory of law and you know for even an undergraduate law student kelsen is equal to the idea of the Grundnorm. And when you read a pure theory of law, the term doesn't come up that much at all, actually. Uh, I think he he has, it's it's definitely there and, 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 and part of it, but I don't even think it's the central idea that he has when I read a pure theory of law. So immediately, you know, because I'm, I'm reading that stuff like this week every day. So that exactly that idea has come up too, with this idea of systems and Luma and, and Kelsen and the Grundnorm. But anyway, so you, you you talk about meaning and then you also mention Luhmann's command of historical material. And what these essays show is his mode of thinking being actually a very historical one, almost in another name you mentioned, I always Foucault, that almost in this Foucauldian way, this very historical lens through which he looks at in his own work. So I think I think this idea of meaning on the one hand and this historical approach on the other hand has very direct implications for how we understand knowledge and knowledge creation. But why do you think they are especially relevant right now? I think they're quite. Re- I think they're really important or relevant right now 
simply because when I think you know we would have to go back a bit in history in order to understand why they're so relevant at the moment. And I think we are now at the at the point in time I think where some of the you know greatest of you know sociological projects that were concerned with what you might call a theory of society have to a certain extent largely disappeared from the field of sociology. So and I think when you for instance when you go back a bit in time and you look at the um, development of sociology in particular after World War II, it was a it was a time of great expansion of sociology. So it was a time of great expansion in terms of, you know, all these new subfields of sociology emerged, you know, media sociology, educational sociology, political sociology. So none of that really sort of, you know, existed in, you know, the uh, the times of, you know, when sociology was founded as a discipline, where people were more concerned with what is the object of sociology, what makes sociology as a discipline, what are its methods, what are its institutions, what are its journals, and so forth, what does, you know, training look like. But now, I think, after World War II, sociology starts to react, in a sense, upon its own, right? So, if, you know, it has already, you know, built a certain standing, and now the question is, it kind of, you know, starts to look at what it has, you know, Tucker Parsons being someone who tries to fuse and merge, you know, existing sociological thinkers. But likewise, therefore, you know, you also see that now these kind of, you know, sub-disciplines um, emerge and you know, really greatly expand the field of sociology. And so, you know, while they're expanding, actually, it's also, so, you know, that particular period where the kind of, you know, niches of, you know, emerge where people can engage with sociology from this really abstract and um you know perspective while they want to formulate a a sociological theory so if you know that can unite all these different sub-disciplines and that's not necessarily something that only happens in germany at the time so you know lumon starts broadly with this in the 1950s and 1960s and you see that tendency also in the work of jürgen habermas but likewise you know you see similar stuff you know scholars in terms of you know age and academic career in other countries i don't know these pierre bourdieu Right, so Sofino also published his main Sofino works in the 1980s, like Luhmann, like Habermas. In the UK, you have Anthony Giddens, Sofino similar, Sofino academic biography, also published his main theoretical work in the 1980s, or let's say, I don't know, in the US, James Coleman also published Sofino his main Sofino theoretical work on rational choice in the same period. Right, so it's quite interesting, so, you know, historically, when you look at that, they also, you know, started to work on that in that field of great expansion because there was a niche, in a sense, for that kind of ac- academic thinking. It was also seen, so that there's a need, so, you know, for uniting these different disciplines and subjects. And therefore, I think you see that, you know, most of their uh, publications fall more or less within the same time frame. But then, you know, after the 1980s, once they have published, so, you know, all these works, that kind of development, let's say, starts to stagger a little bit, or let's say, so you know, there isn't such a great interest anymore in these, you know, very encompassing and so you know, grand social projects. I mean, you still obviously you know you have sociological theory, but that you know particular type of you know um, theory of society isn't really so you know a core project anymore. It kind of so, you know it's still there, and you know we're kind of you know rereading these traditions and sometimes you know rediscovering them. But there isn't really so you know anyone who seriously pursues so, you know a similar project at that grand scale. So and so you know what does it obviously you know then mean for our situation today, right? So you know what we kind of you know starting now on a more 
social side, and let's say, so if, you know, outside of academia, maybe more in public discourse and, you know, society itself to realize its own complexity, right? You know, all the challenges that we have, you know, be it in terms of ecological challenges, in terms of, you know, still, so if, you know, internal conflicts that can happen in the world, um, you know, um, large-scale social inequalities, that we see and so forth. So really sort of, you know, challenging situation that is being discovered. And the question is, how can we make sense of this? So, you know, how can we give, you know, meanings, so, you know, to all these different, you know, very complex developments? And I think this is, sort of, you know, what I feel that suddenly, sort of, you know, that in particular, that uh, meaning becomes uh, really, really interesting because suddenly sort of, you know, society finds itself in that situation what is trying to, you know, grasp for that meaning while it's kind of you know trying to make sort of, you know, sense of itself but it doesn't have sort of you know these these great projects anymore on which it can rely on right so therefore sort of you know it's kind of you know now sort of, you know, opening up various possibilities and there's a great search sort of you know for potential solutions and um you know alternative ideas that can provide an explanation that can potentially provide a new type of uh framework or new mode of thinking that is sort of you know quite up sort of you know for these complex changes that we're discovering in the 21st century and i think this is sort of you know why the notion of meaning i thought is so really interesting and potentially quite fitting uh for the situation of society that we're experiencing at the moment mm, this reminds me of this is already a few months ago but i think it was this year the english newspaper the guardian had a column and i forgot who wrote it but the writer was complaining that or one of the problems of society today is is that in his or her words was that we had lost a shared sense of reality and i thought okay that's true but luman already knew this decades ago uh that this is not news but uh, but i think so you know it's kind of going in a direction uh, of trying to point that i was making that let's say certain forms of you know descriptions of society as being you know a great collective or something that we share with all you know people around the world or like you know this notion of sharedness or collectiveness or i don't know we we agree with everybody or it's it's being negotiated and so forth so i mean you know there there are severe cracks right in in those descriptions and they don't really seem to work anymore um you know be it because of the we kind of you know start to realize the the global size of society, you know, be it you know, due to the influx of communication technologies. So I think, you know, there are certain developments, definitely sort of, you know, but in society itself that, you know, kind of showcase there's a huge disparity between these traditional forms of how we describe and understand societies and how, you know, society presents itself. Um, and so, and I think, you know, in that gap, right, so, you know, some of these conceptions now become to the forefront right you know the role of meaning and you could say i mean if you know from the perspective of these kind of you know, traditional scholars how can you make meaning in a world where you actually don't have to agree with anybody why you know these kind of you know shared norms and values and cultures don't seem to exist i mean obviously we're seeing it's not falling apart right it's you know society is still operating in whatever way um so some of you know there are certain structures um mechanisms operations in place right that you know um enable that form of meaning making um and the question is you know what are these how do they work um you know how do they sort of you know deal with that you know enormous complexity that we start to discover like with the global society and all these processes 
right? And I think so. If, you know, this is some of some of the key questions. If you know, I, I found that book um, can make a contribution to. I want to shift direction, but only very slightly. While we're talking about kind of myths about Luman that are being challenged, also in your work, one of these typical myths that you hear is that Luman either you you hear two versions. You hear the one version that Luman was politically conservative, and the other version that you hear is is that actually his own political opinions are kind of hidden from his academic work or not present, right? I personally think, after reading the, the articles that you collected, that I think there is something of Luhmann's own politics that can be gleaned here. Uh, maybe not that explicitly, but also not it's, it's not completely absent either. Would you agree with this uh, assessment of mine? And what do you think, more broadly, are the political implications of these particular articles and 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 reading them together the way that you arrange them i think nikos if you know the answer if you know to this depends a little bit on what we mean by the term political and i suppose there can be two readings of this or two answers to this let's say if we understand political as a you know more generalist term as let's say having a particular agenda Right, having a particular uh, preference in terms of that you would like to change the status quo then I think you know it seems to me really really obvious that you know this is very much at the core of Luhmann's project. I mean, like it was called the Sociological Enlightenment, and you know he published more than fifty books and, and uh, three hundred articles, and I, I can hardly imagine he wouldn't have done that if he had no interest in in making a difference. Uh, so I think you know even if you know that kind of you know writing is evidence of you know having an interest in making a difference, but. You know, from the perspective of this more general understanding, I think one of the key interests was initially to make a difference to the field of sociology. All right, so if you know the way sociology tries to conceptualize society in terms of the kind of empirical methods it's developing for its research and so forth. Really, so if you know, I think this is if you know where you see actually a very, very strong agenda. And while he was always extremely critical and very outspoken in his publication, while he was also you know, at times quite you know, confrontational, uh, you know, think about his texts on political steering, right? You know, where the political scientists would say, um, oh, there isn't, there, you know, we need, there isn't enough power in society, um, so if you know, with the state, and Luhmann said then the quite opposite, or we need more power, Right to make decisions, or you know, others. If you know, when you read about this text, memory, uh, memories. Then there was a kind of a tradition at the time, coming more from uh, archaeology and literary studies, saying, "Oh, there is, you know, we need, you know, to memorize the past and memorize more." And then, you know, Luhmann put an emphasis on forgetting as a key function you know, for actually that you know, memorizing can take place at all. So you see, so you know, there is definitely also quite a um, critical style. In his writing, when it comes to a variety of different academic traditions, you know, and wanting to move them forward, you know, wanting them to progress, and um, you know, having the right um, tools and the right concepts at hand in order to have a better grasp of the um, developments that you know occurring in what society and society itself. So I think that's you know, definitely you know, one of his um, intentions, which I think you know is quite clear throughout. If you, you know, have a more 
narrow understanding of the term politico, you know, politico as in the sense of, you know, the state or the nation state, then, yeah, I think so, you know, you, you know, Luhmann wasn't someone who was always there in a sense who was quite outspoken, I don't know, saying something about certain political reforms. Um, but you can see yourself, you know, at certain times and on certain occasions when it came to, I don't know, certain developments, he could be quite direct, uh, you know, when it comes to reform of another you know, public administration and so forth. So, I mean, there were definitely sort of, you know, things that um, that mattered and was, you know, why he you know, mentioned criticism and provided solutions. But then, on the other hand, I felt you know, he didn't you know, make this always extremely clear or mention it simply because I think there was a large agreement in terms of you know why he think why he thought you know things would have to change you know, even in a, in allegiance with Jürgen Habermas. So often I think you know the differences between the two are quite overplayed, and um, you know when it comes to I don't know reforming you know education or when it came to I don't know making certain you know changes to politics and so forth. I think largely the two of them would have agreed. So it was more you know, in terms of the theoretical concepts that would you know underpin their thinking. This is, you know, where you would see differences. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, they kind of, you know, shared a lot in terms of, you know, their um, narrow understanding in terms of political reforms. And so you might, you know, then go to the third question. So what are the political implications of these texts? Well, so when some of the political implications is definitely, you know, we, I mean, we kind of start to see how some of these concepts, you know, that we seem to take in so much for granted nowadays actually have a very recent um, historical development. So, for instance, you know, we look at the term individual in there. It seems sort of, you know, really strange to us nowadays to think how it could be any different, right? How could there be people in the world that wouldn't describe themselves in terms of, in terms of willpower, in terms of, so, you, know, you know, determining their own fate, so, you know, like having to build their own identities, so, you know, trying to figure out who they are. So, you know, all the challenges that we, you know, find, who are we, so, you know, what do we do? What's our place in the world? Uh, what does it mean to be a man? What does it, be, what it mean to be a woman? I don't know, the educational demands that we have nowadays to grow and to educate ourselves further. I mean, all that is broadly about 200 years old. Right, so for you know the kind of six thousand years of you know human history, you know that wasn't sort of, you know something that societies were you know, I don't know really concerned with, um, you know individuality and you know developing yourself out of yourself. It must have been really strange, sort of, you know, to people back then if you would have asked them about their feelings and how do you feel and what does it mean to you and their inner beings. So probably people would have probably are afraid. And and yeah. run away. So if you know, if you had asked him these questions, so I think you see so if you know there, I think you know Luhmann really comes to the forefront. And you could then you know even go a step further and then ask yourself, well, if these concepts have emerged in the past two hundred years, what has been their impact, right, in terms of advantages and disadvantages? If you know what what has been the impact if we start to understand ourselves as individuals you know think about like mental health problems that experience nowadays so on the one hand it seems very beautiful so if you know to think oh you know i've got all that freedom at my hand and you know figuring out who i am and so forth but then you know more and more within the last you know 10 or 15 years we're also starting to see the side effects of all of that that it's not that easy right it can be very challenging and there's a lot of you know mental health problems that we're now starting to discover because you know they used to be under that 
kind of you know stigma, but they're definitely sort of you know side effects of a concept that doesn't provide you stability from birth on because you really sort of you know have to figure it out along the way and. Yeah, unfortunately, so if, you know, within you know technology studies, you've got all these institutions that try to figure out what is the impact of a certain technology. You know, what are the what are the dangers of nuclear energy? But you could ask yourself the same questions: What are the dangers of an invention of the individual? Right? What are the dangers of the invention of the nation state and so forth? So I mean, and these are all really recent concepts, and I think this is something where you can learn a lot i think from Luhmann saying that something that has been taken for granted and seems to be so normal is something rather quite recent and we haven't really understood you know the social consequences of operating and using uh, these concepts simply because i don't think so if, you know we're aware of their recent historical development um, because you know they seem to be as if they have been there for you know all humanity yeah that's interesting my own uh doctoral work was pretty much on the idea of, you know, this very recent uh, coming into being of the nation state and, you know, do we really understand it and what are the impacts of that? But anyway, so you bring us nicely into my next question, which talking about the individual and, you know, you're even talking about the mental anguish that individuality has given us. You break with a small tradition in this book where, in previous English translations of Luhmann, not the social systems, but the psychic systems have always been translated in English as psychic systems. And in your book, you break with this uh, with this tradition by changing psychic systems to psychical systems. Mm-hmm. So for those that did not or have not yet uh, read your introduction, do you mind explaining why you thought psychic systems was unsatisfactory and why you, you you chose to break away with psychical systems? It's interesting that when you look at the term, you know, that broadly describes um, mental activities, let's say, is a term that is also changing in Lumen's works over time. So it isn't so if you know that he is using the same term for this across all his writings. So initially... Um, let's say, I think we're talking here about the period of the 1960s and 1970s. He, he calls them person systems. Um, so I think so, you know, very much still you know, coming from an you know, action-based conception of society. But you kind of you know, already start to sense that person systems and social systems are different, right? So that is the kind of you know, initial language that he's using. He's not using, unlike, I think, Tucker Parsons, who's using the word personality systems, which has kind of like a closer psychological connection. He's using the term person system, you know, because it seems for Luhmann more, you know, closer in a sense related to that as a social address, you know, someone who's being constructed like at the person at the other end. Um, so I think this is something that very much informs this kind of you know, early thinking. But then when he stuff, you know, started to introduce ideas more around self-referential thing, self-referential systems, this kind of it seems sort of you know that what is what is what is necessary now is to identify how do these systems in a sense, how do these different two different types of systems, what kind of you know, elements produce them right so you know with the person system or with the social system they were both sort of you know constituted in a sense by the same element which were actions 
or meaningful actions, so to say. But once you know, the notion of um, the self-referential moves more to the forefront, it becomes kind of you know, clearer to him that um, conceptually, you need to you know better able to identify what elements constitute him. So if you know what what you know constitutes him as a system. So if you know what is their mode of meaning making, so to say, right? And most of you know that focus on you know what is their different mode of meaning making. Then two other notions, in a sense, are a bit more pushed to the forefront. So which is on the one hand the term communication, which becomes the uh, kind of you know key defining term for um, the social system. And then in terms of the uh, um, you know, mental activities, Luhmann is using kind of, you know, psych- kind of you know, psychological systems, as you could say. So, you know, he's trying so, you know, to describe here the psychological processes and so forth. But he was, I think my impression was he was never extremely happy with that um, term at the time because later on in his writings, he is then using the term consciousness systems because to a certain extent you know the problem is that with the consciousness system it includes all all operations that are conscious right so whatever sort of you know is the system is unable to observe in that time so if you know isn't part of these operations and to a certain extent that's something that is still sort of you know problematic with this kind of you know medium stage where he referred more to these kind of you know psychological uh, terms. So I think, so, you know, this is just a bit to give a bit of a background in terms of, you know, where these different terms and traditions come from. Unfortunately, so, you know, when we look at the, at the variety of translations, it is always translated with the term psychic systems. And yeah, so, you know, that kind of, you know, medium stage. And as you know, the term psychic has actually quite different meaning within English, so, you know, referring more to, um, you know, the sixth sense and, so, you know, uh, actually, so, you know, processes that don't really seem to exist in the real world. So that you know, almost gives like a very different understanding of this one. So it was always you know, quite problematic and in a sense not really reflecting the original meaning of the term that you know, Luhmann had in mind. So while we were working at the translation you know, and you know, trying to, in a sense, um, being able to correct some of the readings of Luhmann, we also had the ability to correct so, you know, some of the mistranslations in terms of you know, some of the terms that we used at. And so, so, you know, while doing that, I tried, so, you know, to look into different terms that seemed um, more appropriate. And it's actually quite interesting when you look at the history of the word psychical, that in kind of, you know, the early days when this word became into use, so more like the late 19th century or early 20th century, it didn't, so, you know, yet have these connotations as it has today, in a sense of, you know, referring to, um, so, you know, certain unexplicable phenomena but at that time the term simply meant its processes that refer to mental or like referring to mental processes right you know referring to the kind of you know psychological world and i thought you know this is actually quite an apt description of you know what luhmann had in mind at the time so you know when he conceptualized you know this particular term in the 1980s um and so therefore i felt as actually an opportunity here to correct so if you know some of these translations and refer so if you know within english to the kind of you know, earlier meanings of that term and you know make it clearer to the reader we are not referring to systems that can sense uh, something i don't know in in the other world right but really so if you know referring to just you know certain types of mental activities that we typically so if you know understand with the uh, meaning making capacities of human beings
Mm. I hope that that subsequent translations by other people also follow this this In- route. Interestingly, there are actually there is a book. I think it's called the Differentiation of Society, and it's a book mm. where Luhmann was also involved in the translation. They already also used that translation. So oh. it was really, I think, the term was introduced with the translation of social systems. Mm. Um, and then became, in a sense, the defining term. But, uh, you know, like I said, in the differentiation of society, which is a book from 1982, if I'm not mistaken, mm. um, and Luhmann was actually involved in the translation and even so, you know, translated certain parts of the book, they already also used the term psychical in there. Mm. Mm. My final question, and looking forward a little bit, is that I was fortunate enough to hear you talk at an event a few months ago by the British Sociology Association. And someone asked you about the future of Luhmann's work in the academia, if you see it staying the same or, or, or becoming more popular or declining. And I remember your answer as saying that we're probably, perhaps interest in Luhmann is on the decline. And should we as someone like me or you who is obviously interested in his work should we just accept that as kind of the natural circle of life of a thinker or and shrug our shoulders or should we work and insist on his importance and hope that that others see things the way that we do um how do you feel about that well, I think, you know, when it comes to the reception of scholarly work, there are a variety of different trends that um, kind of take place. So there is, let's say, what you might call the more general trend of the academic field. And, and I've referred to some of that early on, you know, the great, that phase of great expansion after World War II. And, um, you know, it was really easily possible to engage with such questions, right? So I think, you know, that is quite a long-term process when you look at the institutional development of the field. And, you know, like I mentioned, from the institutional development of that field, you know, we're not only seeing, let's say, a decline in, in that kind of work in terms of Luhmann, but, you know, we're also seeing that quite across. I mean, there isn't really like a second Habermas um, there isn't really like a second Pierre Bourdieu and so forth, right? So, you know, that kind of tradition that had its height in the 1980s and let's say early 1990s hasn't yet so, you know, come to um, you know, similar developments. And I think that's partially due to changes within the academic system overall. But then, you know, clearly you also have these kind of, you know, um, fashion trends. Uh, that for certain periods, a certain kind of sociology can be very, very popular. And often sort of, you know, that's not really driven necessarily by, you know, the work of that particular scholar, but often sort of, you know, it's driven by particular contextual developments in society itself. So for instance, again, you know, if you're using the work of Jürgen Habermas as an example, um, I mean, two of his key readings, the transformation of the public sphere and the theory of communicative action, they really you know, became only extremely influential at the end of the 1990s. Um, so, you know, leading to his you know, standing as a, as, a, as a global scholar. And I mean, partially, so, you know, that was triggered by the invention of the internet. You know, the, the, the kind of suddenly that society would experience it as a kind of global society, you know, the breakdown 
of the of the you know world into different kinds of blocks, you know, the Western and the Eastern block and so forth. And also, if you know these developments, let's say you know the internet and the kind of you know, political changes that happened at that time, I think seem to inspire some sort of hope that um, you know through these communication technologies and the lack of you know these superpowers that you know let's say a more bottom-up approach of you know society you know sharing and negotiating with itself would become possible and you know during that time you see so if you know that these concepts of communicative action and the public sphere and negotiation became extremely popular um, and so if you know had, had, had a real-term impact um, and so forth. So, you know, then suddenly you see an enormous rise in citations of these books. You know, so these are some of the kind of, you know, fashion trends. And, and then likewise, so if you know, what you then also see is you see rediscoveries of certain scholars that then, you know, can happen. Um, you know, we see, for instance, the rediscovery of the work of um, Du Bois, um, you know, an, an um, Afro-American scholar uh, who was largely unknown for, you know, a very long period, um, you know, being rediscovered and suddenly sort of, you know, becoming um, a very sort of, you know, vocal speaker that can contribute to, you know, the debates we're seeing at the moment around racism, institutional racism and so forth. So again, sort of, you know, these rediscoveries can happen sort of, you know, in the light of these developments. But then I suppose what you also see is that, Patterns of receptions can actually also be quite uneven in global society itself. And I think, you know, this is what you see also you know, with the publication of this book, that Luhmann isn't necessarily well known in the Anglophone world, but for instance, he is very well known in the Spanish-speaking world, right? In particular, I you know in Hispanic America, uh, most of his books have been translated. And I think most of sociologists, most of the sociologists in, in Hispanic America will know his name. Right, you know, you travel to I don't know Chile or you know Mexico, and people will have heard of Luhmann. You know, they're familiar sort of you know with concepts like you know functional differentiation and autopoiesis and so forth. And so you know, similarly, you will see that also he was for a certain period quite popular in the Scandinavian countries. So again, so if, you know, you therefore also have these kind of you know regional variations. And then you know, you might have sort of you know scholars like ourselves, uh, you know, who are in that kind of you know niche and sort of, you know seeing you know the relevance of his work uh, for our empirical research and therefore sort of, you know can potentially contribute to a variety of different disciplines, be it, you know, in legal studies, be it in sociology, be it in management and so forth. So you know and therefore you know contributing, you know, to his to the development of his work, maybe not necessarily in sociology. But maybe sort of in, in all these other disciplines, and um, and that's potentially also quite a positive development. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. And I know it sounds terrible that you you've just released a book, but is there anything else that we can look forward to you from you for? So I think in terms of translations, um, you know, like bookwise translations or you know book length work, um, I think so. And taking a bit of a break. But then um, there is a special issue with the journal Educational Theory coming out, where, which will include a translation of Lumont's work on the child, or it's called, you know, The Child, a text that he um, published in the 1990s, uh, where he also introduced actually a really interesting sociological concept uh, on medium and form. Um, and and there are like a number of um, scholars who will kind of, you know, react or reply to this particular paper um and yeah so if you know we're kind of finalizing you know the papers uh actually right at the moment so hopefully so if you know that's something that should be published early next year oh that sounds 
Very interesting. I would love to see that. So, Christian, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Nico. It's been a real pleasure um, talking to you.